1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
0: Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. I'm Matthew Loveridge, and as I so often am, I'm joined today by esteemed colleague and future beneficiary of my will, Jack Luke. Today, we're going to talk through some interesting road bike tech dead ends. Being an early adopter in cycling means that you get to be the first to ride cool new stuff, which is great, obviously, and that is a privileged position that bike journalists like us find themselves in. However, If you actually buy into things that can sometimes end up being very costly because of the huge changes that road bike tech has undergone in the last few years, it's entirely possible that you'd buy into something new and in a couple of years it's rendered obsolete by standards or incompatible with the latest hot new thing. You might find yourself with a bike that has parts that you can no longer get spares for or you might find that simply fashion has moved on. We're going to talk through some of our highlights from the world of dead and obsolete tech. We're going to start with hydraulic rim brakes. They're a good idea that arguably came at the wrong moment for road bikes. Jack, tell me everything you know about hydraulic rim brakes.
1: Well, hydraulic rim brakes very much started out in the mountain bike world. And to this day, Magura still makes brakes which are very highly regarded. I've never actually used them. I very briefly worked on them. And they are Actually, fairly elegant in terms of design, and still retain moderate popularity in the kind of cycle touring world. You often see, as they've been known on the continent, trekking bikes spec with them. But in brief, the vast majority of hydraulic rim brakes take the place of a normal V brake or cantilever brake. They mount on very similar posts, and uh, they're almost like like a like a disc caliper split in half in a way. Where you've got a piston on either side pushing, you know, a traditional rim brake pad. Now. In the mountain bike world, they were a very good stopgap. They do provide you know, a great deal of power, and in trials riding, they were used for a very long time, still are as well. But in the road bike world, they've had a bit more of a patchy history. Now, the pedants among you will be frothing, saying that Magura has, in fact, once released a drop bar version of its brakes. And that is entirely true. In the 90s, there was a drop bar version. Of the of the um, the brakes that they produced, though it was just a lever rather than an integrated shifter. But the most notable kind of entry into the world of hydraulic rim brakes was with SRAM and its red uh, hydraulic rim brake, which came back in 2013. At the time, testers on BikeRadar.com, leading multidiscipline cycling tech website that we're so proud to call our employers, noted that it felt excellent and you know had really genuinely good braking power. But curiously, they were also released at the exact same time that hydraulic disc brakes were beginning to make way into the uh, the road bike world. And though hydraulic rim brakes are a good solution, when you compare them to disc brakes, they never stood a chance.
0: That is fundamentally it, isn't it? Because had that tech come along in the 90s for road bikes, it's entirely conceivable that there would have been a long period of people running hydraulic rim brakes on road bikes, but presented with a choice between disc brakes, which from the mountain bike side, everybody knew were essentially better. It it was an interesting choice. In fact, small point of detail, it was both red and force group sets, I believe, had a hydraulic rim brake option. And it just seemed like You had to really want rim brakes to make that choice in 2013. Obviously, the road market did look quite different, then. that's eight years ago now. And at that time, if you looked at the Pro Peloton, for example, everyone was on rim brakes because you were not allowed to ride discs. And so I guess from a manufacturer's point of view, making a top-end group set, they're like, how can we make the best possible version of the tech that's allowed? And so that kind of made sense. My sense... Is that probably nobody bought them with their own money?
1: <laughs> yes, I suspect that's probably the case. You know, I've I've seen them once. In fact, it was probably about two years ago in a cycling cafe in Bristol called Forever Peddling. And they um there's a guy who's a regular there, and he has them on a kind of a similar era Cannondale, but he still rides. And they are they're very cool. They're definitely a funny, I don't know, throwback to that sort of awkward era between the now dominance of discs and like i'm sure mechanically they're probably phenomenally powerful you know oh a rim brake is actually a 622 millimeter rotor matthew so with the additional power of um you know a hydraulic rim brake plus arguably better modulation
0: maybe i I could see them working really nicely of course you always had you have this you still have the disadvantage that's inherent to rim brakes which is that your rim, when it gets wet or you get mud on it or something, then your braking deteriorates significantly, which it doesn't really on a disc brake.
1: Yes, completely. And also, you know, you're somewhat limited to the amount of power you can apply to a rim compared to a disc, which is a cut piece of steel most commonly. Whereas a rim, if particularly if it's a carbon rim, probably isn't delighted by the idea of incredible amounts of compressive force that a, uh, like a, a hydraulic rim brake can apply to it. So, they're interesting they are still available but they came at the wrong time i think i think you're totally on the money where you say that if they'd come 10 years earlier i could have seen a much greater adoption and just for the sake of completeness we should say that magura um though under the different guises including rotor has dabbled in and out with other hydraulic rim brakes part of rotor's um uno group set
0: was uno yeah, was it, yeah no? that's right. And, and also, uh, Magura, at least at one time, they may even still offer this as an option. They do one that's for uh, time trial and triathlon bikes uh, because on those, the braking and shifting was normally separate anyway. So you didn't have the issue of whether it was combined or not. And so you'd have your little levers on your um, TT bullhorns, whatever you call them. The base bar, is that the right word? Yeah, base bar, we'll call it that. But so anyway...
1: An interesting piece of text, something I'd actually I'd quite like to get, like a hydraulic TT uh, rim brake from my Fixie, just to really push it further and further into the realms of niched But one I don't
0: think we're ever going to see anyone ever producing again. Jack's Fixie is, of course, an example of pure function over form entirely dictated by performance considerations and in no way influenced by fashion. No, I'm I'm definitely not a fashion victim. Right. I think we'll go on to the next one. So this is quite closely related actually, and it is the business of hydraulic converters. And again, we're talking about what is essentially a stopgap technology that appeared for drop bar bikes. Uh in I it's hard to actually put a time period on this exactly but I guess we're looking at late noughties early teens again and it was you if you had a conventional road group set which was designed to operate brakes via cable i.e like standard rim brakes but you wanted to have proper hydraulic discs rather than cable operated discs which have some downsides you could run a, essentially a conversion box which usually lived underneath the stem that would convert your cable pull into hydraulic movement giving you hydraulic braking problem of course is that that was not the most elegant solution because it meant having a great big object underneath the stem now do you remember anyone actually using these uh do you know one of the very first story as you were talking there i tried to find it one of the very first
1: stories i wrote i wrote it bike radar was about the hope system um and it was used to win the three peaks if i remember correctly um that's the v-twin the v-twin and looking back in 2013 actually um that was it was rated fairly highly We've got four stars in cycling bus our sister magazine and Of the different systems that came out, I think the Hope system looked kind of like a system, if that makes sense. You know, as an all-in-one unit, it looked quite elegant, quite functional, almost like a, I don't know, Matthew, you tell me, you're a car guy. A twin V8, kind of like a a -A V-shaped Or or a
0: V-twin engine on a motorcycle, I guess, which might be what they had in mind. But yeah, it, it wasn't a horrible piece. I mean, Hope is generally made quite aesthetically pleasing objects, if you like. Anodizing and squared off edges. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But
1: no, in terms of actually, I don't know, real world use in anger or when I worked back in shops, no, I didn't think I ever saw one. I guess the one system that did take off in a bigger way, and we're going to come to another, but I'd say TRP's high road system, which is a kind of funky caliper that also had a hydraulic uh, reservoir, would you say, on the top of it? Yeah, see,
0: that's. To me, that was a more elegant way to achieve sort of the same thing. The, the high road was, it had a essentially a tiny hydraulic system built into it. So the actual total amount of fluid in the system was minute. The cable ran, the standard mechanical cable ran all the way to the caliper. And then that actuated the hydraulics of the caliper. So in principle, you've got the benefits of hydraulic braking, but you didn't have any of the complexity of running the hydraulic lines and, and having a whole system that required bleeding. It was essentially a very small contained system. And in fact, the High Road is still a reasonably popular product that does get specced on bikes that are just a little bit cheaper than would have full hydraulic group sets. So yeah, I, I'm not going to hate on the High Road because I actually think it's quite a cool product. The other That was the alternative because also TRP made arguably, makes, sorry, arguably the best mechanical disc caliper anyway, which is the Spire, and the reason is that that was a dual piston caliper when traditionally cable operated calipers would have one moving piston and one fixed, and so you were actually flexing the disc every time you braked, which I always thought was a horrible concept um felt dreadful I, I had bb7s
1: avid bb7s which were the the mechanical disc brake for years and years on my my old genesis code affair and uh, they they could be very powerful if you set them up correctly but they howled like nothing else and also they to to get them to set up really well was an enormous amount of work to, to really get it good um I can't say I particularly miss mechanical disc brakes. In fact, you actually wrote a column, Matthew, some years ago saying that they were dead in the
0: water. Yes, I I said that they should be consigned to the bin of history. It's that, the fact that they essentially need continual adjustment mechanical calipers, whereas one of the key advantages of hydraulics, apart from the power and modulation and all that, is that they are to some extent self-adjusting. Whereas, yeah, with a, a simple mechanical caliper you can you're constantly having to wind the brake pad in because otherwise you lose your braking power. And that could happen over a surprisingly small time period if you were riding in like really gritty conditions.
1: And lastly we also saw Giant's conduct system until very recently, which essentially replicated the functionality of all of these systems, but visually integrated into quite a neat way on the the front of the handlebars
0: yeah giant system it was better hidden than previous versions and it was simply a way because on giant's cheaper models like the contend giant wanted to give people hydraulic braking but at the time when they launched this which i don't know it was four or five years ago i think the hydraulic group sets hadn't they hadn't trickled down to the level where that was economically feasible and so giant chose to give you hydraulic braking via its own converter but that did mean again this rather conceptually inelegant system i mean i rode a contend with it and it worked absolutely fine but on a kind of philosophical design level that didn't appeal to me in the slightest and i would rather have had some sort of cable operated brake i think Uh, Interestingly, uh, Giant actually only dropped the conduct system for, I think, the 2021 model year. And that was based on consumer feedback that they'd rather pay that little bit extra to get a full hydraulic group set. And also helped by the fact that you now get full hydraulics down to Tiagra level. So reasonably affordable stuff. And that's in Shimano, by the way.
1: That's going to be my closing point, really, is that now you know now there's just no reason to be going for these weird stopgap solutions because Tiagra really is functionally almost every bit as good as 105 now and it's is, it is genuinely affordable for many many people and personally my own road bike would you believe has rim brakes and all the while with this these kind of weird stopgap solutions perhaps some
0: gravelish stuff aside i would rather have had rim brakes all along A little controversial, perhaps, but on on a pure road bike, I absolutely agree. I love a good rim brake is a joy. They're incredibly easy to live with and properly set up. They work really well. It's when you get into other types of riding that rim brakes really fall down and you just end up destroying rims. Let's move on to a weirder one. This is the shoe based power meter. Power meters have got significantly more affordable over recent years, and we've seen lots of different ways to get a power meter on your bike. So the most common ones are crank-based power meters probably, but there's also rear wheel-based ones uh, and pedal-based ones. A few years ago, a new brand called Brim Brothers came along and said, we're going to put a power meter in your shoe. It's going to be the world's first wearable power meter, I think was what they called it. And they raised 180,000 euros on Kickstarter, promised great things. And then the whole thing went up in smoke. Nobody got their parameter. Nobody got their money back. And the shoe based parameter was dead.
1: Explain to me, Matthew, how was this supposed to work? I mean, like functionally, how on earth were they going
0: to measure power from a shoe? So I don't know the absolute precise details, but my understanding of it was that they were basing it around. speed play pedal and cleat system and what they were going to do was integrate the power meter bits which usually rely on some arrangement of strain gauges arranged so that you can compute power from the stresses imposed and they were going to have that inside the cleat and then maybe have some electronics sitting on top of the shoe and then that would communicate wirelessly to your device like any other power meter so you'd read it on your head unit and of course the beauty of that if it had worked as a system and come out and been available is that then your power meter would be on your shoes and so you'd have a power meter on every road bike that you jumped on which is sort of the dream in some ways because particularly at a time when power meters were incredibly expensive. If you had multiple bikes and you were a big nerd about your power, it's very expensive to have power data across your whole fleet.
1: Now, of course, things have slightly changed now. As you alluded to, there's lots of different ways you can have a power meter on your bike now, but pedals have definitely taken off in popularity. And most notably was last month, uh, Garmin released its Rally power meter pedal system, and that replaced the original Vector power meter pedal system. The key thing with the rally pedals is, though, at, I'm not going to say great, but considerable expense, you can switch the bodies of those pedals between Luke cleats, Shimano SPD SL cleats, first power meter to do that, and also the regular SPD two-ball cleats. So you do have a swappable solution where you could go one day racing your cross-country Mountain bike with the two bolts uh, pedal body onto your Shimano SPD SLs, but you know, it's not quite the same in terms of convenience as a shoe. And do you think, oh, Matthew, I've got a great one. Do you think there's legs in the concept of a power meter pedal shoe going forward?
0: I mean, obviously, if somebody could make it work, it could be quite useful. I think part of the problem is with a product like that, if you are tying people into in the case of Speedplay, a more niche pedal system, then that's always going to be a barrier to wider adoption of the product. Uh, Obviously, Speedplay might get much bigger now that it's under Wahoo, I don't know, but it's still not got the sort of market dominance of Look and Shimano. Uh, But yeah, the concept certainly appeals. Of course, then I suppose, you know, if it's built into your shoes, then you've still got the problem of, you know, some of us have a lot of cycling shoes. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the cycling journalists of this world. One
1: thing I'm wondering—maybe someone can tell me in the comments—but why on earth would you, or could you not, integrate a power meter into the sole of a shoe, into the footbed? Because you know, it—in terms of the way a power meter crank measures power—surely you could detect the flex in the shoe. Would that work? It's not. It's not know.
0: inconceivable. I think the strain gauges usually are placed in metal components typically because it's much easier to sort of do the maths around that and get consistent results when you're measuring strain in metal components um obviously then of course you'd be attaching your power meter to something that is disposable but now there's a precedent for doing that because if you buy SRAM red power cranks they have to go (laughs) in the bin when the um chain ring wears out i
1: don't think that's what sram would tell you they'd say they would be
0: recycled but yes you would have to essentially replace your chain ring expense of about 800 pounds i believe so, something like that yeah i mean power meters have overall got a lot more affordable but it depends how hardcore you are about your measuring i mean if you want to go with uh single-sided which deeply offend tech nerds like our colleague Simon Bromley, because he says, well, you're only measuring half the power then. But if you go, Oh,
1: that's actually just a power estimator.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you go with a single-sided crank-based power meter, something like a Stages, they can be genuinely cheap. You can get a power meter, I think, for under £300. Don't quote me on that. Prices Sounds may have big. gone up since I last checked. I don't know. Uh, but it's within the reach of, you know, that's comparable to buying a kind of mid-range wheel set or something so it's not inconceivable but actually interestingly you we, you talked about the rally pedals the new ones which yes you can swap between lots of bikes but how much are they again <laughs> <laughs> i think for the dual sided set it's 1000 thousand pounds ridiculous. was it i think a 1000 pounds which is just a lot that's of money. quite a lot of, also bearing in mind how hard a life pedals sometimes have that does seem like quite a lot of money it does seem like a lot of money, and it's not one that you're going to see me rushing to buy.
1: This last, oh, sorry, this uh, fourth one. This take take this one with a pinch of salt, because we're definitely not saying it was so much of a dead end. This is more a case of where if you adopted into the world of road disc brakes early, you definitely could be forgiven for feeling a little bit salty over how quickly things moved in this area. Is that my case to talk? That was your cute to talk, Matthew.
0: Yes, uh, this is essentially the devastation in the world of road bike standards that was caused by disc <laughs> brakes. Because essentially, a lot of the initial design decisions that were made by people releasing these bikes were then revised down the line as the standards kind of settled down. And the two key ones that I would highlight are quick releases, because early road disc bikes all had quick release axles and now they all have through axles and that means that old road frames are not compatible with a lot of new wheels although you can change hub end caps and stuff and the other big one is flat mount brakes and that was a total change in the way that brake calipers were mounted onto road frames and that means that old group sets don't work on new frames and vice versa. There's some back and forth with adapters you can do. You can also swap old style post mount calipers onto new group sets, for example, but it's not simple.
1: No, it certainly isn't. I've been caught foul of this myself where there are these adapters you mentioned. I think it's AS Solutions in Canada. They do uh, a genuinely nice adapter which will go from IS or post mount to modern flat mount calipers, but it's very, very limited in terms of the uh, the design of your frame. So there's kind of more complications if it's located on the chainstay rather than the outside of the seat stay, but also the exact models of calipers. Um, I it, On my aforementioned Crude Affair, I ended up putting a, a new 105 group set on that a while ago which came with flat mount calipers, and I had to buy the, the Shimano non-series, I can't remember exactly what name, but the non-series calipers and plumb those into the the line. And like, it's not the end of the world, but who's buying group sets and dribs and drabs like that? So by the time you've bought your fantastic deal online of a nice group set and added a caliper in, and then if you don't have the stuff to bleed it, like it's, it's a real faff. And flat mount in particular is one of those ones that I think we can all safely say has not been done fully for the benefit of the consumer. The argument, and I've certainly heard this from a, a, a number of people, including frame designers who I won't name, um, it, it was done basically to make manufacturing much easier with carbon frames. A flat mount, mount is far more simple to integrate to a frame than a post mount. And, uh, yeah, it's really annoying.
0: <laughs> yeah. I know people are really hard on flat mount, but there's no question that the brakes are smaller and lighter. And when you are tucking a caliper inside the rear triangle of a road frame, flat mount is inherently superior in that respect. I I'm not totally sure. I, I know that a lot of frames arrive with the mounts not particularly sort of square and you need to face them and stuff. And I guess being because the bolts on, the calip- on a flat mount caliper are quite close together, if there is a tolerance issue, it's exacerbated because they're that much close together. So a small error will mean a bigger offset in the caliper and so on and so forth. But I refuse to sort of hate on them because overall I think they are an improvement. It's just one of those annoying things where you kind of wish that they hadn't made all those post-mount road frames first.
1: Yeah. um, See, I'm on the other hand, because they are much harder to face in my experience. So a post mount, you've got tons of material you can remove. Even if it's totally crooked, you can always pad it back out with washers, whereas you don't really have that luxury with flat mount. And also, although it was a bit of a fiddle, SRAM used to have a really nice set where you'd have CS kind of cupped washers on their post mount brakes, which would allow you to essentially accommodate any amount of any reasonable amount of um, tolerance issues on a post mount break without having to face it you could really clamp those calipers down wherever you wanted and though it was a fiddle it was a very very neat solution and you just don't have that luxury at all with flat mount and i don't know it just it just feels like something that hasn't benefited any consumer in a meaningful
0: way I can see where you're coming from. Let's go back to the axle thing. So obviously, first generation of road disc bikes had quick releases like every road bike for the last century, essentially. And then through axles came along. This is annoying because obviously through axles were already very well established in the world of mountain bikes. People knew that they were inherently better with discs because they fixed the alignment. The downside from a road point of view is that a through axle is usually slower to change although there have been various approaches to solving that particular problem what really annoyed me is how bike makers started putting through axles on road bikes but then couldn't decide initially what was the right size for road bikes and a lot of the first generation that had the through axles for example had a 15 mil front and a 12 mil rear but now almost all road bikes are 12 front and rear and then we've then we've seen weird bikes uh, like the recently launched Focus Atlas gravel bike, for example, which has boost spacing. And so we're still kind of all over the place. And that's before you even get into the fact that there are multiple thread standards for through axles. So while the diameter and overall spacing of the axle is a defined thing. The axles themselves are not cross-compatible between different bikes quite often. I'd like to point out as well that with the Focus
1: Atlas, and I believe a couple of specialised um, e-bikes as well, it is boost spacing, but it's boost 12mm front and rear. Whereas boost spacing on nearly everything, well, in fact, everything else in the mountain bike world is 15 front, 12 rear. So Because I don't know if you know, Matthew, but those three millimetres, had they kept
0: them on the axle, the bike would have been literally unridable. That is frustrating because it's almost like they've created another new substandard by doing that. I, I just, I have to say it does
1: worry me somewhat, this trend, because it isn't the only one. I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if gravel bikes do move to to boost. But if it's 12 mil boost, my God, I will get yards of column. You're, yeah, you'll, of you'll
0: write a very shirty column about it and that'll show them yeah then all the readers will think I'm a hero we we should probably say though that I think overall we do agree that through axles are better and that well through axles are fantastic we would prefer them on our road disc bikes it's just annoying that there's been such a long kind of transitional phase where things have been really disrupted nice word yes I, if we could all just
1: stick with whatever it is currently right now forever there's no need to change
0: it yeah thank you very much right we're gonna do our final topic and this one is probably just gonna annoy people but i think you could argue that one by road bike drive are a tech dead end and the reason that i would say that is that they have utterly failed to take off and that the few attempts to make them take off have Essentially failed. um Three T made big waves back in twenty seventeen when it launched the Strada, which was an interesting bike because it was essentially a pure aero road bike, but it had unusually large tire clearances, and it was one by only. There wasn't even a mount for a front derailleur. And Three T went so far as to sponsor a pro team, which was Team Aqua Blue Sport, and they were so they were racing on one by and. The kind of narrative at the time when all this happened was, you know, this is the future because one By is more aero, it's a simpler system, it's, you know, idiot proof because you don't have to think about shifting a front derailleur. And 3T even came out with new cassettes that kind of redistributed the ratios a bit to solve one of the main criticisms of one By, particularly with 11 speed, which is that the gear spacing is often suboptimal for the road. Despite all of that... I don't think very many people bought them and Team Sport kind of fell apart and the riders were quite unhappy with the bikes when it came to actual racing. Definitely, and notably they were publicly
1: rather unhappy as well and blamed the setup of the bike uh, quite notoriously, as in the one by setup, um, for some of their failures. Though there was quite a great deal of other shenanigans going on in the background there. I, I can't help but agree. I think to clarify... On mountain bikes and on some gravel bikes, one by, it's fabulous. It's the best thing since sliced bread. It works very well and it makes a lot of sense. But for my needs, particularly on the road, I just don't think the disadvantages of not having two chain rings uh, outweigh any
0: advantages. That was a lot of so- negatives, but I think I see what you're saying.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I have to put that completely uh, the wrong way around. But you know what I mean? I just... I, uh, it just doesn't work for me. I, at the most basic level, I think at the extreme ends of the chain line on the road, it just feels kind of rubbish. Um, And being able to shift between those two chain rings to dump a bunch of gears, but also to optimize the feel of your chain line. At like, that's it for me. That's enough to keep me on team two. by. I think,
0: yeah, from my perspective, the reason that one by makes so much sense for, like you say, mountain bikes and some gravel bikes, although again, it's not, quite as clear cut is eliminating the front derailleur has tangible advantages when you're shredding the NAR because you don't want to be shifting <laughs> between chain rings when you're on constantly varying terrain uh, and it increases the chances of having chain drops when you're shifting the front because it's just more of an issue uh, but on the road those things aren't really problems and front shifting is so so good on the latest road group sets that it's not really a disadvantage in any way and it gives you access to so many closely spaced gears because you can have a reasonably tight cassette set of cassette ratios but then because you've got more than one chain ring you've got a whole extra range you've got your high range and your low range and yeah it just just works two by for the road still obviously though we're still mostly talking about 11 speed road group sets obviously now you know sram is 12 speed does the case get stronger for one by with 12 speed
1: you couldn't have said with me in more beautiful matthew because i was going to say that i uh, last year i reviewed the vitus um energy which is a cyclocross bike but my testing was primarily a mix of gravelly stuff but more road than anything else um and i was actually pleasantly surprised by just how well i got on with the one by system i still felt a little bit limited at certain points i was kind of doing an overnight bike packing thing but at no point was i like oh i simply can't live without my second chain ring but at the same time i probably would have preferred to have it i just i'm just not convinced um i would say something like campag's ekar group set which you reviewed and really liked is a little bit more of a like that appeals to me more with its wider
0: range overall. Um, Ekar was the first one by group set where I've ridden it and thought there really is no compromise on the gearing here because it has the high end, the low end and everything in between, which even with 12 speed, I'm not sure it could be said. And it's, I certainly wouldn't say that about one by 11 setups in general, although it does depend what gearing you choose. Uh, but then, do we want a one by 13 group set on our road bikes? There are still, like you say, those disadvantages to do with having a relatively extreme chain line. Um, and again, you have to ask the question, are you solving a problem that's not there?
1: Of course, the solution to all of this, Matthew, is that everybody should be riding a fixed gear because it's simply the purest form of riding. Or, maybe... We should all be on roll off speed hubs, which have 14 speeds.
0: Or we should have gearboxes. I believe you wrote an excellent piece about that a year or two ago saying we oh, we want gearboxes on our bikes, because that was another option for gearing. You could have a simple one chain ring, one cog setup, and then you have all your gearing contained within your bike, hidden from view which is actually a very elegant solution if you can make it work and make a light enough setup. We did speculate as to whether Shimano was going to do that. It's not been forthcoming. Uh, no, I, I think uh, to
1: to name one of our um, close, we'll call them frenemies, bike, um, their comment section whenever there's a new uh, group set release, as is ours, I might add, is always a light with people asking for gearboxes. And I think, you know, there is obviously the pinion setup, but again, That is just one option that's out there from a fairly niche manufacturer. I think if Shimano or SRAM came out with a truly guns all blazing uh, gearbox, it would completely change road bike design forever, bike design forever, and it would be an absolutely massive hit. I think that, to, to give some context, the story I wrote about that in 2019 was one of our biggest ever news stories on bike radar. People went nuts for it because it's such a exciting opportunity and something I really hope we see within our before our memberships of the cycling media illuminati expire.
0: Yeah, yeah, it would be incredible if somebody actually came out with that. Though we're seeing all sorts of interesting new groups that's hitting the market, but actually, fundamentally, nobody has truly upset the world of drivetrains. The other example I can think of was the ceramic speed driven concept, which has been rolled out year on year as a kind of concept that you can't ride um and it it's super cool but is it ever gonna happen for now it's vaporware i suspect it's probably gonna stay vaporware but it's i might it, send them an email right after this matthew and actually ask them because yeah thought that, about that was about it a very a while. radical reimagining of how a drivetrain might function on a bicycle But yeah, mostly we're talking about chains and cogs and derailleurs, and that hasn't changed for a hell of a long time. I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, Please do let us know if you think we've missed off any key dead ends from the world of road bikes. And also let us know if you disagree fundamentally about the choices we've made, particularly the one-by thing, because I'm sure some of you are dying for one-by road bikes, but we are not. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. I've been Matthew Loveridge talking to Jack Luke. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com.